Welcome to I Fought the Law, the law being corporate media and its shilling for global arms dealers and fossil fuel companies as it cheers on global war and planetary destruction. I'm your host, Dennis Bro. I'm a journalist, novelist, educator, and media critic. Our first segment is called Dispatches, and today's dispatch is, If Paris is worth a mass, Europe is worth a search. In the latter part of the 16th century, Henry Navarre, the first French king from the House of Bourbon, wanted to ascend to the throne. Henry was a Huguenot, a Protestant, nearly assassinated in the St. Bartholomew's Day bloody massacre of Protestants by Catholics in Paris. The Pope, backed by the Spanish monarchy, opposed Henry's accession. Henry then decided to convert, and when asked why the conversion, is supposed to have shrugged his shoulders and said, Paris is worth a mass. Volodymyr Zelensky desperately wants his country, Ukraine, to be accepted into the European Union. However, Ukraine is universally characterized and perennially ranked as one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. So Zelensky, in an attempt to further Ukraine's candidacy, is supposedly cleaning house, proclaiming new reforms that will change the social reality. Ukrainian police and prosecutors recently searched the homes of a former Zelensky backer, the billionaire Ihor Kolomaisky, suspected of embezzling funds in a key petroleum company, and the ex-minister of the interior, Arsen Aryakov, who resigned in a scandal over a mysterious Airbus helicopter crash that killed what was the then-current interior minister, two other ministers, and 15 children. The EU has demanded corruption reform, and apparently Zelensky has, as Henry, as he now seeks to indict former backers like Kolomowski, shrugged his shoulders, figuring Europe is worth a search. Europe, though, has not crowned this monarch and instead, in a new report, claims that corruption in Ukraine remains unchanged. This is a key question, not only for Ukraine, but also for the West which is shipping largely untracked, huge supplies of weapons and materials, much of which may never reach the battlefield. In August of last year, a CBS documentary claimed that of the $23 billion the U.S. was supplying to Ukraine, only perhaps in some cases 30 to 40 percent were making it to the front lines. The initial report was attacked and then censored, not because it was inaccurate, but because it did not promote the war. Likewise, the president of Nigeria recently reported that weapons in the hands of armed terrorists in his country came from the Ukraine. Zelensky himself is no paragon of virtue. He was elected on a platform of peace and halting corruption. As a peacemaker, he recently revealed that like Angela Merkel in Germany and Francois Hollande in France, he had no intention of ever implementing the Minsk Accords, which would have afforded partial autonomy to the Donbass region and halted the drive to war. As for pilfering the state and corporations, he delayed almost three years in implementing his proposed anti-corruption Bureau for Economic Security, and then, being judged on the side of the oligarchs, his initial popularity plummeted from 57 to 29 percent before the war. There is a let-he-who-cast-the-first-stone element to this as well. The EU, thoroughly captured by a bourgeois ruling elite, is no paragon of honesty. A female prosecutor in Greece, Elani Tulupaki, initiated an investigation into bribes from the Swiss pharmaceutical company Novartis, which has led to a claim by the government against the company for 214 million euros. In response, the subsequently installed conservative regime charged the prosecutor with abuse of power 
and suspended the Office of Anti-Corruption from which he had launched her investigation. This is overt corruption, but the systemic, covert kind is rampant in the EU also. In France, where it's Emperor Macron who passes laws in the Assembly by decree rather than by vote, continues to propound his pension reform, claiming there is no money to support the system, while the profits of the French equivalent of the Fortune 500, the CAC 40, have never been greater. Likewise, he freely gives 100 million euros to Ukraine and announces French spending on arms and weapons will increase by one-third from now until 2030, a time when he claims the pension fund will be under pressure and running dry. The other Western European bastion of honesty is Germany, complicit by its silence and what Seymour Hersh revealed was the blowing up by the U.S. and Norway of the Nord Stream pipelines the result of which has enormously increased the price of energy in German factories, some of which have closed, and homes, some of which are freezing. While the country's industrial might is diminishing, its chancellor, the Social Democrat Schultz, has approved the shipment of leopard tanks to Ukraine. And so once again, as with the earlier Nazi panzers, a newly rearmed Germany will send its forces across the border into the east. On second thought, Maybe Ukraine does belong in the EU, not because it has reformed its level of corruption, but because along the birds of a feather argument, the rest of Europe is sinking to its level. Okay, our guest today on I Fought the Law is Mike Wayne. Hi, Mike. Hello. Mike is a professor at Brunel University in London, has written widely about film theory, third world cinema, and the state of the British working class. He's also just come from three days of strikes in Britain. We will discuss the current struggles of British and French workers and how their plight has worsened by the war in our next segment, Money Buys Nothing and Guns for Free. Mike, you've just come off from the picket lines and so have I. I was at the huge demonstration total in France of more than a million people in the streets and in Paris, people of all ages, fighting against Macron's pension, quote, reform, where the pension age will rise from 62 to 64 and where people are starting to make connections between the enormous profits here in France of the oil companies and the rest of the leading companies and the pleading of poverty for social services. One sign read, the oligarchic class sacks our country. And another petitioner in the first of these demonstrations had a sign calling for the nation's pensions to be paid from the 80 billions of dividends paid to their investors by the richest 40 companies. The anger is starting to mount here. What is the situation in Britain with the defunding, the protests, and the strikes? Well, Dennis, we're in a different place from the French. In terms of our starting point, if we're talking about industrial struggles, I mean, the UK has been at the sharp end of the neoliberal project since the Thatcher government in the 1980s. And while uh, the French uh, have managed to hold on to their their social benefits, you're talking there about there's protests about raising the... Um, the retirement age from 60 to 64, I think um, at the moment it'll be 68 before I can retire, but probably by the time I get anywhere near there, it'll probably be in the 70s uh, on current trends. So the, the French have managed to hold on to their benefits and their protections uh, in a way that we have not managed to do. I mean, you don't have to go back too far to look at, well, consistently, uh, mass protests, um, the yellow vests more recently, but going back to the protests uh, against the Juppé government in the 1990s, we haven't seen anything really like that in the UK um, at an industrial level, certainly since the defeat of the miners um, in the 84-85 
strike. So we're starting off at a very low base. Um, if I could paint for you very quickly, a kind of brief, well, brief sketch of the state of the nation. Uh, socially and economically, this country has been wrecked by an evolving uh, policy agenda that has absolutely refused to infringe in any meaningful way on corporate prerogatives and profits. Quite the contrary, there. Then it's all, everything is aligned to those interests. You know, our education sector has been gobbled up by the private sector, our transport sector, the trains, which I'll come on to in a second, you know, overpriced and unreliable. The NHS is crumbling. Gas and electricity prices have been on an upward climb for, for many years uh, in order for the shareholders to make profits. Uh, the, the water companies, I mean, this is this is a lovely metaphor, really, that they pump sewage out into our rivers and seas. And, you know, if they get fined at all, which is not very often, they're, they're tiny amounts. They're not a disincentive. And, of course, you know, there's nothing like no, criminal prosecutions um, for environmental pollution. Um, so we are, you know, metaphorically and literally, we're in the toilet seat. The wages have been declining in real terms since the crash of 2008. We've got 15 million people who are on or below the poverty line. That's about between a quarter and a fifth of the population. This is in a country that's the fifth or sixth richest in the world. So we're starting from a low base, but you're right. I have come off the picket lines, uh, as it were, and there are a bunch of public sector workers now on strike. And that really started to change last summer uh, when the, the Rail Maritime and Transport Union, the RMT, took strike action over wages and conditions. And they were led by uh, their General Secretary, Mick Lynch, and the Assistant General Secretary, Eddie Dempsey. And they went through the media. They had a massive and instant impact. They kind of torpedoed presenter after presenter and interview after interview. They achieved uh, more in two days than the, the lead of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, had done in in two years in challenging the cosy political media consensus. You know, they blew away the media assumptions that there's nothing you can do about inflation, that if workers are seeking higher wages, that's only going to make things worse. Workers have to tighten their belts. We can't afford it. Taxes are a bad thing. All of this, they kind of, you know, uh, dismantled, as Eddie Dempsey put it very memorably, he said, the people at the top of the economy, they're having a disco. And as Mick Lynch said, the working class are back. This is the kind of the impact this had. There was a real kind of marked class character to their intervention. You know, we, the sense of organic intellectuals of the working class, really well informed, destroying the, the well-paid studio presenters and interviewers who are desperately trying to trap them and trip them up. And gradually following on from that, a whole load of other public sector workers have now joined in disputes. And so we, we do have some mass action, but it's uncoordinated at the moment. There's no sense that it's it's converging towards anything like a general strike. The trade union leaders are wary of politicising this, but the government is politicising it because they are rushing through legislation that would enforce uh, minimum service levels or in some key areas, key sectors. Uh, and if you don't go to work to provide those minimum service levels, you would be sacked. Right. Strike breaking legislation. Yeah, that's happening here, too. And, you know, they're now talking on March 7th about the possibility of really what's closer to a general strike, depending on where this motion is to move to 64 years. Let me just say, too, that in the U.S., the average retirement age is 65. 
uh, for Social Security, but they want to raise it to 67, and there's hardly a peep about it. Whereas the French are in the streets by the millions. It's quite dramatic to see the difference here. Okay, I want to go back to another sign in the French demonstrations, which read Thatcher resigned pertaining to Elizabeth Bourne, Macron's prime minister, once and confusingly identified as on the left, but now judged as rapidly implementing in France stages of Thatcher's neoliberalism in England. Do you see parallels in the two struggles? Yeah, I mean, for, for a brief moment, um, all too brief moment, there was a kind of interlude, if you like, in the long night of uh, neoliberal dominance at the political level. Uh, and I'm talking about when Jeremy Corbyn captured the leadership, or at least parts of the leadership of, of the Labour Party between 2015 and 2019. And that project ended in electoral failure in the uh, December 2019 election for, for complicated reasons, no need to go into. But since then, the right uh, under Keir Starmer has been back in control and has waged a ferocious counter-revolution against the left, starting with Corbyn, who has been suspended. He was suspended from the party, then he was reinstated, but he's had the whip withdrawn. And, and what that means is he doesn't, he effectively does not sit as a Labour Party MP. And Starmer also recently announced that uh, Corbyn, as far as he's concerned, it's not clear that he has the power to do this, of at least officially. But as far as he's concerned, Corbyn will not be allowed to stand as a Labour Party MP in the next election. And um, also recently, uh, and this was very symbolic, Starmer sacked the shadow transport minister, Sam Tari, for giving an interview from a picket line when the RMT dispute first started. So there is a, a project underway, really, to rip out any sense of the Labour Party providing an alternative to the orthodox neoliberal policy paradigm, really systematically trying to you know, make Labour safe again once more for capital. Mm, okay. In France, for the first time, the most radical party, the LFI, France Unbowed, has finally demanded a hearing in the Assembly on the ever-escalating war and the expenses being poured into it. For the most part, though, there's not a conscious linking of the poverty of workers with a new turn toward defense and the arming of the continent to pursue a war which never needed to have started in the first place. Is there in Britain a dawning that being so heavily enlisted and subservient to the U.S. and its drive toward war in maintaining its global empire has negative repercussions for the U.K. and its workers? Here, I need to sort of give you a bit of a historical context, really, uh, in terms of the anti-war movement in the 21st century. And the story here is actually a bit more hopeful. Um, this is where the left has actually had success with the decline, if you like, of the classic sort of industrial struggle. Uh, a lot of energy, political energy gets displaced into other areas. And, and one area in which it was very constructively displaced was the anti-war movement, which started shortly after 9-11, because everyone could see that the United States was going to use this as an opportunity to to start bombing countries. I mean, their problem was that they were attacked by a non-state actor, but that's no good. They needed states to bomb. They started with Afghanistan and, and Donald Rumsfeld reportedly said there were no good targets there. So then they obviously they moved on to Iraq and there was a big anti-war movement in this country, February the 15th, 2003. 1.5 to 2 million people on the streets here as as there were very large demonstrations all around the world. Now, of course, we didn't stop the war, but in the UK, I mean, I think geopolitically, 
it stopped a wider conflagration that the global anti-war movement because they wanted to go into Iran. More locally in the UK, it broke Blair's prime ministership. They've never really been able to rehabilitate him, the establishment. And it did constrain Britain's sort of military imperialism, most notably in 2013, when a parliamentary vote was forced on whether or not Britain was going to join strikes, airstrikes in Syria. And that vote was lost and, and very largely still due to, to all the public disgust about the Iraq war. And of course, the chair of the Stop the War Coalition, the, the major organ coordinating the anti-war movement, was Jeremy Corbyn, who went on to become leader of the Labour Party. So his success there is in part down to a desire to break with the failed and appalling foreign policy under Blair. So it starts with from a higher base, but there are difficulties. One difficulty is, of course, this is a proxy war, and that does help to neutralise the public because you're not directly involved. Um, also, again, because of the Labour Party being under Starmer, very pro-NATO, uh, it's difficult to get anti-war voices into the mainstream. Stop the War drew up a statement uh, just before the Russians invaded that was critical of NATO, and initially 11 uh, Labour MPs had, had signed that statement, and Starmer said that if they didn't take their, their names off the statement, they would again lose the whip, and, and all 11 of them did, in fact, take their names off the statement. So, you know, the Labour Party, again, trying to drive out any anti-imperialism, sort of residues from the Corbyn leadership. And one of the best moments in Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party was in the 2017 general election. Suicide bombers attacked a pop concert in Manchester. And, you know, this would ordinarily be an absolute gift for the right. And what Corbyn did a few days afterwards, when campaigning resumed, is he made the link between Britain's foreign wars and terrorism at home, and actually public opinion swung behind it. So he moved left, whereas most Labour Party leaders moved right, as Michael Foote did um, in 1982 when uh, the Argentinians went into the Falklands War. He practically goaded Thatcher to send the Navy over there, and of course she did, and she won the the general election on a tide of nationalism. So that's where we are in terms of kind of, we don't have, again, a political mainstream that's easy to begin into. That's what it's going to take building a mass movement to do that. But we are starting at a higher base than, um, say, at the industrial level, I'd say. Good to know. Okay. Finally, in our fields of film and television and representation, Russians are, of course, the villains du jour. Every spy story now has made the easy overlay of the Soviets in the Cold War and Putin's contemporary Russia. I don't see anywhere where this is being challenged in the mainstream, but I do see some places in mass entertainment where there's criticism of the U.S. neoliberal regime. For example, the rebels against the empire in a weird place, the Star Wars series Andor, and in the final season of The Walking Dead of all places, where the villain, the Hillary Clinton-like leader of the Commonwealth, promotes a governance that is peaceful on the surface, but repressive underneath. Do you find any chinks in the armor in British film and television or in British news media? Well, the British media, um, I, I'm going to focus on the news media because I think they do play a really important propaganda role here. Um, the British media, they can draw on a sort of Cold War anti-Russian narratives. Uh, and so there, there's a whole stock of imagery there which, which they can draw on. So to make it a very kind of uh, black and white struggle between 
good and evil and the kind of usual tropes are, are coming out uh, this is our war this is a threat to all europe this is a threat to you know the russians are a threat to democracy uh, and all, all that kind of stuff um some of the worst people are the kind of if you like the liberal imperialists uh the observer for example newspaper which was a, a big cheerleader for the iraq war obviously hasn't learned any lessons they are promoting this kind of stuff uh, they have a journalist called simon tisdale who writes about this and he's literally uh, saying escalation is inevitable we have to fight them we have to fight this war russia must lose in the early sort of days of uh, the media coverage there was a lot of talk of what are the off ramps for russia uh, in other words there was a sense of we've got to provide a way for russia to sort of come out of this with some sense of dignity slash with some sense of its uh, security concerns addressed there's absolutely no talk of off ramps now it is very much a sort of sense of here is a chance to defeat russia see russia be defeated on on a kind of i suppose scale of um in afghanistan against the mujahideen so they're licking their lips and they seem incredibly unaware uh, seemingly unaware of the 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 chances of devastating catastrophic uh miscalculation you know simon tisdale's kind of like sort of almost you can see him shrugging his shoulders and saying you know get a backbone when you you know you talk about or fears about a nuclear exchange or or something so there's a huge amount of beating the drums and of course there's just a lot of propaganda by omission you know they don't talk about the context there's there's no sense that nato's eastward expansionism does represent a material threat to uh russian security and and there's no sense that you can hold that thought in your head and at the same time condemn you know russia invading a sovereign country there's just a, a lack of complexity in, in thinking about what's really going on and the sort of you know the usual kind of abstractions are kind of used about values and democracy and of course the media thereby keeps people in a state of kind of very primitive immature understanding of what's really going on you know they could do with a dose of sort of thinking about things from the kind of international relations perspectives where they, they sort of discuss your know, strategic interests of players and regional powers and their relationship between regional powers and global powers and and so on and so forth. The, the popular discourse in the media, at least, is is really poor. But um, I think popular intuitions about how dangerous this is, and and skepticism about NATO and about the West. I mean, I think that's that is still there because of you know in this country because of that anti-war movement that has been successful. And so people are, I think, less less likely to believe the kind of sort of notions that it's all heroism on our side and all evil on the other side. So I think there is definitely scope for the the movement to both kind of reactivate and challenge those kind of uh, media narratives. Good. Okay. Um, and since you did talk about cheering on or shrugging about global nuclear war, uh, we're going to now play Global Jeopardy. In the last segment, we will play Global Jeopardy, since with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, partly because of the possibility of a nuclear conflict because of this war, now moving the doomsday clock ahead to 90 seconds to midnight or planetary destruction. And we are now all in Global Jeopardy. 
It's up to you to pick one category among the ones I will read. We'll look at the answer, and together we'll try to form a correct question around this answer, since the media often formulates the wrong question, and since in philosophy it is often said the job is to ask the right question. Okay, so the categories today in Global Jeopardy are How I Learned to Love the Bomb, It's China's Fault, Workers of the World Disunited, Strike Three, and poopery or collateral damage. So you choose one category. Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, strike three, Dennis. Okay. So we'll reveal the answer is name one sector of the economy that is unaffected by the war and neoliberal austerity and consequently not going to strike since almost every sector seems to be involved and since most sectors in Britain seems to be on strike. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. That that makes sense. Um, I mean, I guess the question would be how expensive would peace be for the arms industry? Mm. Yeah. Good. Good question. Good question. That's a very good question uh, in the U.S. Also. And yeah. And what's, what's, the, what's the what? What is the U.S. military budget? Well. It's uh, it's billions, and it's also on track. Remember, the Pentagon just failed. I think it's their fifth, maybe it's third. They just failed their third um, accounting reckon reckoning. Wow, wow. So nobody knows. <laughs> the answer is really nobody knows. Wow. I think so, um, I read that for the 2021, they say that Global arms spending is now two point one trillion dollars. Uh, I think it was dollars, and, and yeah, so two point one trillion. I wonder how much. Uh, what a contribution to world peace, if that was redirected elsewhere. Yes, yes, and and because of this, I think another answer to this question is every sector of the economy is affected by the war and neoliberal austerity, and as you've described in this episode. Every sector, there's a lot of anger and the strikes are piling up. And, you know, even in the U.S. starting now, uh, we're starting to have strikes and we're also starting to have the National Labor Relations Board back at least the ability to organize a union, which is quite interesting. OK, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks for playing Global Jeopardy. You did very well, which means you get to come back and play Global Jeopardy again. And hopefully we will not be playing Final Jeopardy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, that's it for this week's I Fought the Law. See you next time. And in the meantime, keep fighting. I fought the law. I fought the law.